You're listening to curated podcasts from the Beyond Infinity radio show, presented by me, Piers Cunningham. And me, John Young. Now, let's get stuck into this story about moon rocks, because we've just heard that famous speech from JFK, and that was kind of uh, inspiring Americans to get behind the push to land men on the moon. Very expensive, very technologically advanced a set of requirements to put men on the moon, especially when you're thinking of uh, late 1950s, early 60s technology. They managed to develop computers to do it, managed to develop a, a massive rocket, the Saturn V, to get them there safely and bring them back. They did collect these huge quantities of rocks when they were there. I think close to a metric ton of mm-hmm. rocks were brought back on a, a Apollo. So they were handpicked by astronauts yep. from the surface of the moon at the landing sites, mm-hmm. different landing sites where they set down. There was a, a um, deliberate decision back in the 1960s, even though they had pretty advanced laboratories set up. And in fact, I think an Australian scientist was in charge of the Lunar Sample Receiving Laboratory over in the States, and his name escapes me. Any of our listeners want to t- send a tweet or uh, messages, go to our website and uh, check out our uh, social media handles at the bottom of our homepage, beyondinfinity.com.au. You can enlighten me as to his name. But famous science scientist from Australia who was involved in handling them, and they'd, they'd put them into these glass boxes, and they'd have sort of rubberized gloves that you'd put your arms into so you didn't make contact, you didn't, mm-hmm. you didn't uh, uh, disturb the sterility them, yeah. or contaminate them and you can manipulate them and uh, they did all sorts of tests but nowadays obviously 50 years on technologies have advanced a lot and uh, just our abilities to analyze and to uh, to take samples and uh, mm. derive sort of better science and higher quality results that sort of stuff more of an insight into what how the how the moon formed all this sort of stuff is is kind of still of interest well, fact, isn't it that one of the things is we've got more power in our mobile phones than um, the computing power absolutely. that sent people to the moon That's right, so we did. you know the amount of technology change is just incredible yeah, yeah. no it, it's massive and anyone who doubts the sort of benefits of that massive expense of going to the moon and sending those 12 astronauts to the surface in my humble opinion some of these spin-offs that came from it like the development of teflon or velcro the, 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 and, yeah velcro yeah. is another one the development of uh, of, um, computer technology mm-hmm. was huge and a lot of that was driven so IBM built the control systems that that controlled the uh, you know the two million moving parts of mm-hmm. the Saturn V rocket 160 million horsepower seven and a half million pounds of thrust at, at, at liftoff it really was a beast and it's yet to be surpassed and there's no rocket even the Falcon Heavy which I think delivers about five over five million pounds of thrust mm-hmm. so very powerful rocket that's uh, using three Falcon 9s linked together. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are bigger rockets that are in the pipeline. Uh, NASA's working on it, the Space Launch System. But to date, the Saturn V remains far and away the most uh, successful rocket mm-hmm. out there. There were definite spin-offs of that technology. So coming back to these samples, basically they were gathered by Apollo 15, 16, 17. They were set aside, kept frozen at minus 20 in a uh, safe, secure place at NASA. They were earmarked for later opening. So um, after some some internal debate and and lobbying from scientists, because people have known, scientists have known, it's not a secret that this case existed. It was just all about when they decided to release it. Various scientists in America and from different institutions, universities and uh, scientific institutions there have um, have been lobbying to uh, get access to this material and finally NASA's agreed makes sense it's 50 years since Apollo 11 landed mm. uh, in 1969 uh, that'll be happening in uh, in July this year so I think a bit later than that 
these samples, uh, including core samples, they're pristine, they haven't been opened since they were sealed uh, on the surface of the moon. Uh, they are going to be distributed to different places around America and opened up and hopefully shed some additional light on the origins of the moon because there's been a bit of movement in that area. You know, we assume that a very large object collided with the moon early on, like it could be 50 or 100 million years after the formation of the Earth. Mm-hmm. A large object collided with the the um, the early Earth and then caused a huge disruption and, and spat out material, spat out a whole yeah. bunch of material, which then coalesced into the Moon. One of the reasons that that theory is popular is because the samples that they took from Apollo and other, I mean, I think the Russians also had robotic sample return missions where mm-hmm. they they went there with rovers and 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 uh, robots that scooped up some material much smaller, didn't have the same ability to kind of look around like the Apollo astronauts did and select samples much more carefully. Mm-hmm. But they brought this material back and, and they found that the, the lunar rocks and dust and sand, very, very similar to the Earth, almost sort of 99.9% the same yeah. as material from the Earth. Mm-hmm. So they do that by looking at isotopes and, and the like. So that then leads them to think, well, you know, they, they've, got a, common, they've got a common stage. origin. Yeah. 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 And then there's been a, a much more re- recent theory, which is suggesting that the Earth was in a molten state mm-hmm. during that collision. That explains why one side, you know, the moon is, is sort of geolocked, so it keeps one face pointing at the Earth as it goes around its orbit. That face is quite different to the far side of the moon. And one theory is because the Earth was this molten ball at the time, it was actually radiating heat at the face of the newly formed moon oh, yes. that, that resulted in, those, in, in the appearance that we see, those big lunar seas mm. that we see. So it must have been very hot, very, very different to the way it is now. But just one theory, there are other theories out there about how the moon formed. And, and this testing, I guess, is to at least maybe narrow down some of these theories. Yeah. Yep. So I assume that they're going to take some of this material and then repeat some of the tests they did 50 years ago. Mm. and make sure that they're getting you know the same results there as the baseline and then add the new technology in to see how much variance it is. Yep. Would they also take some of the old samples they have and then do the same test to see if there's difference between those two materials, so the, the stuff that's been preserved yes. versus the, the what's been, say, oxidised or out and about in the community, yes, and then just see what uh, the differences are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly that's one of the definitely one of the, the the comparisons they'll be making. Also, they want to see whether uh, you know whether there was any benefit in storing it at minus twenty. You mm. know, would they have been just as uh, you know would it have been just as effective to store it at room temperature? Mm. That kind of thing. Yep. And as you say, whether there's uh, much of a difference between those samples that have been kept stored in that sort of pristine condition mm-hmm. and and stuff that's been out there. You know, doing the rounds of universities around the world mm. because. Uh, this material has been shared around to scientists. People got their hands over it. There's bacteria getting onto it. Well, potentially, it. yes. Yeah. I think that there probably are, you know, some quite rigorous um, standards that are required if NASA's going to send out a rock sample, you mm. know, a pretty precious rock sample from another celestial body. Uh, then they want that to be well looked after. Mm. But I think some of it has, you know, wound up being handled. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And there are even some unaccounted. I mean, there's, there's suggestions that um, Neil Armstrong, the first man on the moon, actually had some rocks that he kept himself and, you know, had set in rings and gave to some of his relatives, <laughs> you know, daughter and so on. So there are some unaccounted rock samples <laughs> yeah, right. somewhere out there. And they're not the only things that have been brought back from outer space. Hayabusa 2 is collecting samples at the Ryugu asteroid. An American spacecraft, OSIRIS-REx, will collect samples from Bennu asteroid and then return them to the moon in the next several years they're mm-hmm. going to be they'll get those samples and the japanese have actually already done it and the americans have already done it they've taken samples from objects and then brought them back to earth in fact the japanese sample return mission crash landed in the desert of australia and 
had some damage. They did manage to get some samples from. They were still intact and back. Yeah. preserved. Yeah. yeah, it's not the first time. So there you go, a new look at some pristine samples from the moon. Thanks for listening. We'd love you to review us on iTunes. It's a great way to let others know if you liked our podcast. And don't forget to follow us on social media. Beyond Infinity RPPFM on Facebook or Infinity RPP on Twitter.